You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. It's the Writer's Pit with today's guest, Chris Fox. Our guest today started writing at the age of six, but waited until the age of 18 to start inflicting the world with his fiction. He's an Apple iPhone app designer by day, but has taken to rocking the indie publishing scene by night. His paranormal thriller series, Deathless, currently includes three titles, including No Such Things as Werewolves, No Mere Zombie, and a prequel called The First Arc, with the next book in the series, Vampires Don't Sparkle, set to release this Halloween. In addition, his new science fiction novel, Hero Born, billed as a cross between heroes and the X-Files, is set to drop this December. That's not all, though. Our guest has also authored nonfiction as well. His book, 5,000 Words Per Hour, Write Faster, Write Smarter, came out last summer. And readers have said our guest presents a lucid and beautiful path to success for getting words on the page. His newest book, Lifelong Writing Habit, The Secret to Writing Every Day, was just released and continues the theme of helping authors keep the butt in the chair by cultivating a lifestyle geared toward writing success. Skyping in from just north of San Francisco from an apartment that's probably three times as expensive as it should be, the Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Chris Fox to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. Let's touch first off on your fiction series. You have a paranormal thriller series called Deathless. Tell us about that series. Sure. So the series, the the concept is that I wanted to do a science fiction take on what is normally um, a fantasy trope. So when you hear about uh, werewolves or zombies or vampires, typically you just sort of accept on faith that they exist and they don't really explain why. What I wanted to do is get into a scientific explanation on how a werewolf could exist. Why would they be killed by silver? Why would moonlight allow them to change? Uh, And how could they exist in the first place? And so I did a lot of research into things like anthropology and genetics and neuroscience and helioseismology and kind of came up with a very realistic scenario on how and why a werewolf could exist. And so what I decided is that there was an ancient culture that predated ours and is responsible for things like Egypt and Sumeria coming about, and that that culture disappeared um, in the last Ice Age, and now they're suddenly returning. So in the first book, No Such Thing as Werewolves, um, a group of soldiers and scientists is dispatched to a pyramid that appears kind of out of nowhere. Um, They're attacked by a werewolf. They find out that the reason the werewolves exist has to do with a virus, um, you know, kind of like your traditional zombie virus. And so a plague of werewolves starts to spread, and they need to figure out, um, first off, why they've returned, and second, how they can deal with them. Very cool. So you have the first book in the series, No Such Things as Werewolves, and then No Mere Zombie, and then you have a prequel called The First Dark as well. Right. All, th- all three of those are currently uh, available, and, and the sequel, the third book kind of closes up the trilogy, Vampires Don't Sparkle, will be out this Halloween. It's and- cool that you did so much research for a uh, non-traditional thing that people would read would research you know a lot of people wouldn't research werewolves they just be like ah there's werewolves here they are they're running around whatever what other kind of things have you researched for your various stories i learned quite a bit um because one thing would lead to another so i would read books on um what we know as caveman the cro-magnon and what their culture was like um I learned little tidbits like, uh, for example, canines have the most malleable DNA out of any mammal. So this is why there are so many breeds of dogs and why you can create a breed of dog in just a few generations, which was good. I mean, it it seemed to sort of back up the idea that if there was any type of creature that would be able to shapeshift, it would be based on a wolf. 
do you include like different breeds of werewolves in any of your stories? Like you have like a Chihuahua werewolf or a <laughs> like a <laughs> like a big ass Jack Russell. Uh, yeah, Rottweiler werewolf kind of just different varieties. <laughs> I, I do. So um, males and females have different abilities. So in, in the series, um, female werewolves are larger and stronger um, and have different powers than male werewolves. So I know that you guys are uh, fans of role playing. If you're familiar with the role playing game Werewolf the Apocalypse, uh, werewolves had all sorts of cool supernatural powers like super speed and you know super strength and the ability to turn invisible. Uh, so I incorporated some of that into the book, and different breeds have different powers. And uh, the fourth book in the series um, is kind of the start of a second trilogy. is called The Great Hunt, and so you have a bunch of different types of dogs and wolves, all of which you know are <laughs> are being explored in different ways, everything from a Chihuahua to you know a Great Dane. And then you also have a science fiction title um, that's slated to release in December called Heroborn. Um, you've built it as a cross between heroes and the X-Files. Tell us a little bit about that title and how you got into maybe writing science fiction. So it, it sat in the same world as my Deathless series, um, and I used a lot of the same science when I was creating this. Um, as I kind of did my world building, I thought, is there any way that I could shove aliens into the same mythology that could include things like werewolves and make it make sense? Um, and it seemed like a big challenge, but I think I've managed to pull it off. So the basic premise is our main character is a software engineer um, at a, a startup in San Francisco, which is very much based on, on my real-life experience. Um, and he's learned that aliens have been experimenting on people and giving them superpowers. So he wants to find out why he keeps being kidnapped by aliens, why they're being given superpowers, and sort of what the alien agenda is. So that's where it's similar to X-Files, similar to Heroes, in the sense that these people are getting um, abilities for the first time and are sort of learning to explore how they work and to fight back. So are these, or is there a possibility, since it's in the same world, that you have these superheroes battling with the werewolves and there's sort of crossover there? That's definitely going to be the long-term plan. So the uh, Hero Born series starts 12 months before Deathless. So there's a zombie apocalypse that occurs in my, my Deathless series, um, but it'll be several books in the superhero series before that occurs. But once it does, yeah, you'll have, you know, superheroes versus uh, aliens versus werewolves versus zombies. <laughs> <laughs> wow, awesome. It's like a royal rumble, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so do you have... Uh, a fair share of graphic violence in any of your stories since you do have werewolves they tend to make messes of their meals and fuck people up pretty bad so uh do you think do you think that is necessary in this kind of story or is it more of like a not so graphic i think it's necessary i mean you know absolutely necessary so uh, the werewolf and vampire genre with the advent of twilight really took in my opinion uh uh a dark turn. You know, vampires shouldn't sparkle, which is why the, the title of one of my books is Vampires Don't Sparkle. Um, so there's a lot of very graphic violence in my series. So one of the main characters right off the bat gets killed, um, just ripped apart. And the way that werewolves um, come about is they rise from the dead. So if you get killed by a werewolf, there's a chance that you'll come back as one. And so people are getting torn apart left and right. And the reader doesn't know, or, are these people just going to die? Or are they going to die and come back and start killing other people? So you know, bodies are getting eaten left and right. Um, by the time you hit the second book and you've got no mere zombie, um, you have zombies that are eating people, werewolves that are eating people. <laughs> it's uh, it's very, very violent. Um, and what's been interesting about this is the way the categories work on Amazon. 
So um, romance is sort of, um, I guess, proliferated every single genre, even horror. So a lot of the people that are picking up these books, they're used to a very traditional um, paranormal romance. And they get to my book and they'll start reading it and they're like, oh, God, what did I just pick up? You know, people are getting <laughs> eaten and torn apart. A little curveball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, we've talked about this a lot on this show specifically is, you know, we're we're f- focused on the kind of darker side of fantasy. And, and we've talked about is violence necessary in these kind of stories. And uh, you obviously have it covered in that case. Uh, is there any other thing that you think should be included in fantasy? I mean, we've often talked about or we've talked a couple of times about how we think erotica, for example, is sort of cracking the genre their genre open with all this weird shit they do. And sometimes we kind of think, you know, why doesn't fantasy or sci-fi explore crazier ideas? I think we're starting to see some of that. So you see like Flintlock fantasy is a good example. So like the books by Brian McKellen, um, he has something called a powder mage where they use gunpowder to feel their abilities. Um, And it sounds a little bit weird, but you read these books and it's really compelling. So you're, you're seeing some, odd twists come about that I think are really good. Um, Jim Butcher just came out with his um, Aeronauts Windlass, which has been an amazing addition to the fantasy genre. So he bills it as steampunk, but um, it's definitely an outgrowth of fantasy, and I like seeing that it's taking a different direction. I definitely wanted to hit on your publishing practices and your marketing practices, because I think you have a lot to offer our listeners as far as your expertise goes. What prompted you to decide to go the, the indie route with your with your work? So there were two things that contributed to that. The first is that I started traditionally publishing back in 2004. And like every other author, the way that you break into TradPub is you put out short stories. And so my short stories started getting snapped up um, by things like The Rifter. And I loved seeing my name in print, but I wasn't getting paid very much money at all, certainly not enough to live on. Um, And worse, I lost the rights to all my work by having them publish it, which really frustrated me. I didn't want to put um, all this blood, sweat, and tears into making these wonderful fantasy worlds and then turn them over to other people for a pittance. So that really turned me off to traditional publishing. Um, The second thing and what finally triggered me publishing my books was in working for a startup, you learn that you you have to get into something we call growth hacking, where you have to figure out some very non-standard ways to market. And in my day job, we managed to figure out a way to get our application onto the Colbert Report. And it's that sort of scrappiness that I realized I could apply to indie publishing. So, you know, I jumped in with with both feet and have tried a whole bunch of things. And uh, to date, in my first 12 months, I have sold just shy of 30,000 books, which I think for an indie author is pretty decent. So what what kind of marketing have you used to, to get your name out there? Because this is commonly something that no one really seems to have a answer for it. It's just one of those things you do and you kind of figure out yourself and what works for you and what doesn't work for you. What what has worked for you so far, do you think? There's a very standard series of steps that, that you need to follow. Um, the very first thing is something that I call passive marketing. Um, and that's the product that you're designing. You need to make something that the, the people in your target audience are going to see and love without you having to do anything else. So in the case of fiction, that means you have to have an amazing cover. You have to have a title that's going to grab their attention, something like No Such Thing as Werewolves. Um, and once they've clicked on your book and are looking at it or have picked it up in a bookstore, the blurb, the paragraph that they're reading on the back, needs to be really compelling. And if you do all these things, then people are going to pick up your book and buy it. 
once you've done that and you've set up your passive marketing, then you have to go out and find the audience you want to market to. So in my case, the people who most love my books generally play role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, um, Rifts. And so I went to all the places where these people hang out, which was easy to do because I'm one of them. And I would just <laughs> post on those forums, you know, hey, guys, I, I put a book out there. Will you take a look? And once a few people had read it, it started spreading through word of mouth. And then as far as platforms go for releasing your titles, a lot of folks these days when they do some indie publishing are tempted to go the Amazon-only route uh, for a promise of riches and glory. Um, I think you've you've kind of bucked that trend a little bit with your practices, um, including success with iBooks. Could you tell us about how iBooks has worked for you and what other platforms you're utilizing to get your books out into the world? Yeah, I started out exclusive with Amazon. And the reason why most authors do that is because of the way Amazon's algorithms work. They have a program called Kindle Unlimited. And if you're exclusive, you can be in this program and it will dramatically increase the rank of your book and just get a lot more eyes on it. Um, once you leave that program, you sort of are on your own to advertise, which I'm okay with. Um, and what made it worthwhile for me is that I, I have contacts at Apple. So being an app developer, I already knew a few people there. And then I was very fortunate in that the iBooks team reached out directly to me and said, you know, hey, what would it take to get your books on our platform? So when I agreed to that, they ran a big promotion for me um, right when No Mere Zombie came out. Um, I had several thousand books downloaded very, very quickly. Um, and since then have done really well on the platform, largely because the iBooks team is great. I mean, they're they're always willing to help you. Um, they'll answer questions. They will run banner ads, you know, when new books come out. So they'll, I guess, be in touch with you in a way that I have not seen on Amazon. Is iBooks a platform that's easier or easy for indie pubs to get into? Or is it is it a little more tricky than just getting onto Amazon? I, I think it's much harder for the average person. It requires you to upload your files using a, a Macintosh computer, um, which not everybody has, obviously, and their system is a little bit difficult to understand. For me, it was very easy because I have um, experience as an app developer, and it's exactly the same way. So the same way I publish an application is, is exactly what you use to put a book up. So you've you've done a couple of nonfiction books also. What made you decide to branch out into nonfiction as well, uh, in addition to fiction? So I belong to a Facebook authors group. There's about 35 of us. And one of the things that we do on a very regular basis is someone will post and say, hey, who wants to do a writing sprint? And so we'll decide, okay, at 8 p.m. we're going to start writing. We'll write for a half hour and then everybody report back here and post your word count. And so the people in this group would do that. You know, Person one would post, hey, I wrote 400 words. Person two would be 800 words. And then I'd post, I wrote 2,200 words. And they started asking me, you know, how is it you were writing so fast? And so I started explaining my methodology to them. And somebody said, you should write a book about this. So the rest is kind of history. Yeah, I actually purchased 5,000 words per hour. Uh, I love I love anything that's motivational or anything that, that increases productivity. Uh, I actually came up with an idea on a forum I'm on called Writer's Work, and it's essentially treating writing as a job you have to punch in and out of every day. So when you when you get onto the site, you're supposed to say, okay, I'm clocking in. And then when you finish, you clock out and treat it like a job. So that's one thing I'm really into is anything that motivates people or gets them writing. And, and one big thing that I've seen over the years is National Novel Writing Month or NaNoWriMo or NaNoWriMo, however you want to pronounce it. What do you think about programs that motivate people to write a lot, but maybe don't push them as much to edit and polish and all these kind of things? 
I think it is a great first start. So the second writing book that I put out is called Lifelong Writing Habit. Um, and the idea behind this is the same thing that NaNoWriMo is trying to get you to do. If you get in the habit of sitting down every single day and cranking out whatever, excuse me, whatever your word count is, then it, it gets ingrained in you and you create a writing habit. Um, so by the end of November, the hope is for most people who start NaNoWriMo that when November ends, you'll keep writing and you'll write like that every single month, which is how I got into a point where I was, you know, cranking out so many books. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge proponent of National Novel Writing Month, um, and any program that you can find that'll get you writing. It's true they don't really support editing very well, but that's a skill that you can learn better, but you'll never get there if you're not sitting down and first cranking out those rough drafts. Yeah, I think it would be cool if there was a something something month every month of the year. Like, okay, National Novel Novel Writing Month's November, and I think December they have sort of a or January they have sort of a okay, let's fix the shit you wrote really quickly month, and then maybe have a polish your novel more month, or and then have a figure out how to market this fucking thing month. <laughs> God, that'd be awesome. <laughs> like, I think if someone could organize something like that every month of the year, then people would be constantly thinking about their writing, constantly thinking about the industry. And I, I would really like to see more of those kind of things exist. And I think having books like yours definitely helps supplement the lifestyle of, you know, writing every day and, and getting used to the habit of doing anything. I mean, we all go to work. And that's a habit we have. You know, we have bad habits. Some people pick their noses or some people. <laughs> some people do heroin. <laughs> some people do heroin. Yeah. So <laughs> let's not have uh, do heroin month. Let's have, you know, let's do, you know, more writing. So Agreed. Uh, the public service announcement from the Grim Tidings podcast. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> what have been some of your favorite books on writing that you've enjoyed and motivated you yourself? I recommend picking up a book on craft every single month if you're going to be serious about this. So I'm, I've read, you know, countless books. Um, some of my favorites, I would say, I highly recommend Anatomy of a Story if you want to learn about plotting. Um, if you want kind of the Cliff Notes version that you can read in an hour, Libby Hawker wrote a great book called Take Off Your Pants. And for those that don't know, there are two types of plotters. There's pantsers, people who write by the seat of their pants and plotters. And uh, in my opinion, plotting is far, far easier. So if you are a pantser, um, this book, Take Off Your Pants, is a, a great way to learn the basics of plot. Um, beyond that, I would say anything by James Scott Bell. He's written like 30 books on writing, and every single one that I've read has been amazing. Is he the one that has done Writer's Digest books? Yeah, he has, actually. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I have several of those. I have so many writing books. That's one of my addictions. Not heroin, but writing books. Yeah. I, Buying I, lots of writing books. I feel like that's a healthier addiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your newest book uh, on writing, Lifelong Writing Habit, The Secret of Writing Every Day, just came out uh, this October. For folks who uh, maybe would want to pick up a copy, what's uh, a little teaser of maybe one tip you might be able to offer uh, readers uh, that, that are found in, in the pages of your new book? Sure. So what the, the book does is it, it explains to you first and foremost what a habit is. Um, as I mentioned earlier about no such thing as werewolves, I found myself researching neuroscience. So this kind of grew out of, of learning about neuroscience because our, our brains work very much like computers. 
Um, so if you think about driving, I think is an example I sometimes use. When you first learned to drive and you know you sat in the car for the first time and you buckled your seatbelt, you were terrified because you had to know about the steering wheel and the brake and the gas and the blinkers and the side view mirrors and traffic signs and the cars around you. But now, if you wake up at 6 a.m. and you've got to have an Egg McMuffin, you don't think about any of that stuff. You just hop in the car and you drive to McDonald's and you get your Egg McMuffin. And when you get back, you probably don't remember that drive at all. And that's because your brain has chunked that down into one thing. So instead of the 100 things that comprise driving, it just becomes driving. And you can do exactly the same thing with a writing habit. So the book teaches you to do that. Um, and it breaks down habits very simply. Every habit has three parts. It has a trigger, it has a routine, and it has a reward. So a good example would be um, the trigger is your alarm goes off in the morning. The routine is you get up and go to Starbucks and get your coffee and a pastry. And the reward is um, you get the rush of sugar. You can <laughs> You can repurpose that habit so that the trigger is the same. That's the alarm going off. But the routine is different. So you wake up and you go to the gym, and instead of getting the sugar rush as the reward, you get endorphins. So the second and third part of the habit are a little bit different, but the habit itself, as far as your brain is concerned, is treated the same. You don't have to build a whole new habit. You can sort of modify an existing one. And the book goes kind of in-depth on how you can accomplish that. And you've actually had some moderate success with at least your first book on writing. Uh, got some decent units sold, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm blown away by this. So uh, it's still selling extremely well. I've sold thousands of copies since it came out in June. Uh, and yesterday, I participated in an author event called March to a Bestseller on Facebook. And the book went all the way up to number 500 in the entire Amazon store. And I sold 350 copies yesterday. Wow. Oh, shit. <laughs> Very impressive. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm still reeling from that one. 5,000 words per hour. Write faster, write smarter. And that's available on Amazon right now. It's what, 299 Two ninety nine, mm-hmm. three bucks. So yeah, pick it up. Seeing the reviews on it, people are eating it up, and enjoying it, and getting a lot out of it. So we recommend it. Yeah, this is my this is the first official time I'm doing this on this podcast, but I give it my Philip Overby Grim stamp of approval. So go buy that shit. Now. I'm putting that on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> go buy that shit now. You've also experienced some success with audiobooks as well. You've you've managed to have some decent sales as far as that goes. Tell us about your experience with audiobooks. So I've been very, very fortunate in the audiobook world. Um, A lot of people will create an audiobook and and they'll hear nothing but crickets. Um, When mine came out, it started selling like hotcakes immediately. I have well over 500 reviews on the first book um, and the, the others have sold extremely well too. Um, And so I've done a lot of investigation to figure out why that occurred. And I think the number one reason is the length of the book. So I tend to write long. The first novel is 130,000 words, which came out to over 14 hours. And the way that Audible works, when somebody purchases a book, it doesn't matter if it's four hours or 40 hours, it costs you one credit. So the fact that my book is longer, um, I, I think, really contributed to people purchasing it. And Beyond that, your cover, your title, and your blurb are super, super important, even more so with audiobooks than they are with ebooks. Because with ebooks, you can discount your book, you can run sales. But with audiobooks, it's all set by Audible. You have no control over what the price is, you can't change it, it's extremely difficult to market. So you're sort of, you know, just hoping that things take off for it. Um, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. I was lucky in that Audible has promoted my book a number of times. So 
I wake up every morning and I'll usually check my sales numbers. And some days you'll be like, wow, I sold a couple hundred extra copies beyond normal. You'll do a little investigation and find out that they emailed several thousand users saying, hey, buy Chris's book. Audiobooks are becoming increasingly more popular, especially with people who are you know busier and uh, commuters. I know I take a one hour and a half train ride every day, but usually I do my writing on the train. So that's kind of my uh, tortoise enclosure, as you mentioned, in 5,000 words per hour. That's where I do all my writing, strangely enough, on a loud train. But do you think audiobooks will eventually overtake the written form and that that will be the more popular form of uh, storytelling or giving information in general? I don't know that it'll ever uh, eclipse it because too many people really love writing, but it's growing by the leaps and bounds. So I saw one study that said that audiobook sales tripled in the last year, and it is really growing. Um, and with the advent of programs like Amazon's WhisperSync, you're going to see more people getting into it. So uh, for those that don't know, WhisperSync perfectly syncs between the ebook and the audiobook. So I can stand in line at the grocery store and be reading the ebook. And then when I get to my car, I can plug it in and the audiobook will pick up at exactly the same location and I can start listening. So you can toggle back and forth between the two. And what was your involvement with the production of the audiobooks? Um, so when you do it as an indie, you list your book on ACX and narrators can audition. So you put up the chapter that you want them to read and then a whole bunch of narrators will come and read that chapter and you go through and listen and pick out the one that you want. So I picked out a gentleman by the name of Ryan Kennard Burke. The guy is amazing. Um, people who've bought the book love his work. Uh, so I gave him the entire manuscript. He recorded the book sent the files um, to me. I proofed them, found you know any little typos that he needed to fix. He fixed them, uploaded it to ACX, and a couple of weeks later, we were selling books. And then on your website, too, um, you have a fair amount of information available for authors who want to market books. You have, a, I think it's a three blog posts specifically about teaching writers how to, how to market successfully. What caused you to decide to, to share that information on your website, and have you found people have found that information useful? Yeah, I've gotten um, a couple thousand hits on each of those articles, so quite a few authors have come and read them, um, which is gratifying. It definitely means it was worth writing. I, I sort of just wanted to give back. I belong to um, quite a few author communities on the web, everywhere from Reddit to Kboards, and so many people have contributed to my understanding of what it takes to make it as an indie, so that the moment I started seeing success, I realized, you know, it's kind of a responsibility to give back and to help the next generation of brand new authors um, get to the same level that I'm achieving. So I took a little time and wrote these articles just because I, I wanted to give back. And it, it's really rewarding when you see an author read this stuff, put it into practice, and then a book that you know ordinarily may not have gotten traction suddenly starts getting traction and these people are finding success too. Yeah, it's really cool. I've really found in the SFF industry, it's, it really seems like as a whole, everybody is willing to tell you how to make it the most in this business for no charge. Um, authors are willing to give you all the information you need to write a good book, edit a good book, uh, market a good book, and, and do it well. And all that information is out there and freely offered. And I, I haven't really found that in, in other industries as, as readily available as it is in the SFF industry. I do love that about writing. It feels like there's no competition. And I guess the reason for that is if you're a reader, you're never going to get tired of reading good books. So if I have other author friends that are writing great books, it's not as if a reader will read their stuff instead of mine. They'll read all our books. What is the biggest mistake that you see indie authors making today that is the most easily avoidable? 
There are two mistakes I see indie authors make that um, really they, they should fix if they want to find success. The first is your cover. Um, getting a cover made can be expensive. It can cost you 500 bucks. But here's the bottom line. If you don't have a cover that's going to grab a reader's eye and they are scrolling down a page on Amazon or walking by a bookstore, they're not ever going to crack open your book and nothing else you do will matter. So make sure you have an amazing cover, whatever that takes. You know, If you've got to use your tax return or... Um, become a prostitute, you know, whatever it takes. <laughs> um, and the other mistake that I see, this one especially on Twitter, Twitter, but also on Facebook, is the constant buy my book spam. Um, if you want to get an audience, the only way that you can do that is by providing value. So uh, a good example of that, on my website, I'll post links that I think are cool to the community of people who would read my books. Most recently, I put up a link to a fan-made movie called Predator Dark Ages. So if you like the Predator franchise, these people made a half-hour awesome movie that's sort of set during the Crusades, and I would post a link to that, and you get you know a couple thousand people download that, and while they're looking at that, they also notice that you have some books for sale. That's kind of how you want to approach this. Um, spamming by my book is not going to be effective. So I wanted to ask uh, a little bit about some of the subject matter you write about. Uh, you've you've written about werewolves, and zombies, aliens, vampires. Is there any other creature or or thing that you would like to reinvent in some way and maybe give it your Chris Fox treatment? <laughs> there is. Um, I've done a whole bunch of, of very classic monsters that will make appearances in future books. So you'll see demons redone. You'll see dragons redone. Um, and I have four or five others that I haven't committed to yet, but I, I sort of wanted to work them all into my mythology in a realistic way. Um, so you'll, you'll have Egyptian gods and Roman and Greek gods showing up. Um, almost anything that I know from the real world, I'm trying to find a way from mythology to bring a scientific explanation. So I've seen this come up a couple of times. What kind of scientific explanation can you give for dragons being able to fly, like a big-ass dragon with, with wings? How, how would you explain explain that in a scientific way? So I talked to a friend that's a biologist, um, and I asked them, how, how would this be possible? You need to give me a way to do this. And what they came back with is that a dragon, to fly the way we would expect a dragon to be able to fly, would have to have hollow bones like a bird. Um, would have to weigh a lot less than a creature that size would normally weigh, a lot less than you'd see in a movie like, you know, say, Lord of the Rings or um, The Hobbit. So your dragons would have to be much more like birds if they were going to realistically be able to fly. So that means they could be uh, squished pretty easily then, maybe. Yeah, so they wouldn't <laughs> be as tough or as strong as they would be in most of your, your fantasy. And as far as uh, future books and projects, what sort of uh, things do you have coming on the horizon, Chris? I've got uh, Vampire Stone Sparkle will come out on Halloween. I have Hero Boren, um, which is the X-Files meets Heroes, will be launching in December. And there are three books in a row coming out on that series. So one in December, um, one in January, and one in February. Um, after that, I finally get back to my first love. I created a role-playing game um, probably 15 years ago that never saw the light of day called Shattered Gods. And I'll finally be coming back to writing fantasy books. So that'll happen probably in mid-2016. Very cool. Well, Chris Fox, uh, I think people are going to be excited to uh, both read your fiction and your nonfiction alike. You've gotten Phil's two thumbs up for your book on writing, and uh, I've already checked out those titles, and I, I, I'm digging them as well. So thanks again so much for uh, coming on the program. Uh, best of luck to you and your future writerly endeavors. For folks who want to find you online, where's the best place that they can go? I'm available at chrisfoxwrites.com. I'm on Facebook, or just Google Chris Fox, and I'll be the first thing that comes up. 
Very cool. Well, we will find you online. Again, best of luck, and thanks again for coming on the show, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Writer's Pit. Check us out online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. We're available to download on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like the show, be sure to leave a review. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.